I believe this week we're on Catechism 10. Yes, we are. Uh, as usual, I will read the question, and together we will read the response. What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath day we spend time in public and private worship of God, rest from routine employment, serve the Lord and others, and so anticipate the eternal Sabbath. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother, submitting to their godly discipline and direction. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and thank you, Lord, that you are worthy of all blessing, all honor, and all praise. Thank you, Father, that you have brought us all here together this morning. We just thank you for the service earlier today and uh, just your unending mercies on us, Father, that we can't even fathom uh, just how much you love us, uh, how much uh, you want us. Uh, you want what's best for us, Father. You don't need us, Lord, but you want us, and we thank you. I just pray that you would uh, watch over us, Father, and help us to to learn to love you. Help us, God, to realize and understand your divine power has given all that we need, Father, given to us uh, all we need for life and godliness, Lord, and we just uh, pray that we would uh, live in that, walk in that, Father. Help us to not give in to the temptations uh, of the evil one to to uh, to do what is considered normal, to do what the rest of the world would have us uh, do, to be like others, Lord. Help us to be set apart, to to be viewed as different. Father, so that we may share your love uh, and the joy that is found through faith in your son, Jesus. And God, I just pray that you would be with Kevin in just a moment as he comes and teaches from your word, that your spirit would open our ears, help us to be attentive. Uh, Lord, help us to enter in, Father, to your message and to be guided uh, and directed by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 6, verse 14 through 29. Mark 6, 14 through 29. This is the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Brian and Brian. Um, So uh, St. Augustine um, once argued that we are shaped more by, uh, he said that we're shaped not so much by what we believe or by what we do, but more by what we actually love. He said this, he says, for when we ask whether somebody is a good person, we're not asking what he believes or hopes for, but what he loves. In Revelation 12, 11, we read about the martyrs that they loved not their lives even unto death. And, and why did they give their life away? Well, it was because there was something they loved more than their own life. In 1 Timothy 6.10, we read that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money doesn't cause problems. Money's neutral, but it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evils. So we're shaped by what we love more than what we believe or what we do. Whatever you find yourself daydreaming about, often... Often these things that our, that our mind goes to in these kind of restful moments when our mind's kind of at ease, wherever our mind might go, that might give us a clue as to what we love. And, and wherever you find yourself today, whatever station in, you're in in life today, you probably got here being navigated based on what you love. And so what I want to do today is I want to compare and contrast John the Baptist and Herod. And in particular, I want to consider what they loved, and how it shaped them. So, so first, let's talk about what, what, what did Herod love. So what did Herod love according to this passage? One, Herod loved to get what he wanted. And he wanted to take the wife of his brother Philip, so he took her. And her name was Herodias. And so this is a weird thing here. So, uh, so Herod took the wife of his brother, and then her name was Herodias, which that's odd, right? Kind of sounds like Herod. It's because they're in the same family. So this is doubly weird. But anyway, he wanted to marry her, so he did. And Herod loved for Herodias to be happy with him. And so we see in verse 17 that for the sake of Herodias, he had John the Baptist put into prison because John had spoken against their marriage, saying that it was unlawful. And Herod loved to watch Herodias' daughter dance. And if you think that sounds shady, it's because it was. It's probably worse than the text lets on. And he loved to show off in front of his friends. 
He loved for them to think well of them. So he told Herodias' daughter that he would give her whatever she wanted if she would continue her little show. And he loved his image so much that he had John executed rather than look like a coward who wouldn't deliver on his promises. And because his loves were disordered, his life was filled with these, these, this tension, right? And, and he probably knew that it was wrong for him to marry his brother's wife. And if he didn't, John made it clear. Uh, and he, and, and uh, Herod wasn't quite sure what to think about John the Baptist. You know, his wife hated him, but he was kind of intrigued by him. I'll read this in verse 19 and 20. It says, And Herodias had a grudge against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So his wife didn't like him, but he respected him and saw him as a holy and righteous man. His wife wanted to put him to death, but he wanted to keep him safe. And when he heard John, he was perplexed, but he was also glad to hear him. Then he has this birthday party, right? It's a big time. It's getting rowdy, I guess. And he gets himself into trouble because he, makes, he, he overpromises on something. And he says, whatever to keep the show going on, I'll give you whatever you want. And she famously asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he feels forced to follow through on this, even though he doesn't want to. And we read that he was exceedingly sorry about it. So Herod had virtually no limits in his life. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And, and while we might fantasize about that, you know, the idea of being able to do whatever we wanted to, whenever we want to do it, we've seen over and over that story doesn't end well. You know, you know maybe there's like the, the famous kid that's the, the trust fund baby, and they never have any limits. They get whatever they want, when, whatever they want, whenever they want, and they end up maybe overdosing or they, their life goes in, in a sad direction. And so it tends to be this, this idea of no limits causes people pain. And that, that'd be true for you or for me. If, if we had no limits, if we had just unlimited finances and opportunity to do whatever we want, we would probably cause ourselves more harm than good. And so there's a sense where sometimes this kind of power and money and opportunity can bring more of a curse than a blessing. And, and think about any, any child that's, that's spoiled, Right. Do you think of a spoiled child as a happy child or as a miserable child? It's usually going to be miserable, right? They're, they're demanding about getting their way. You know, dinner time is a crisis. Um, and, and, and they don't know what's best for them. One way to make a, a child miserable is to always give them everything they want. And so Herod was spoiled. He had more power than was good for him, and he wouldn't deny himself anything. He took what he wanted, when he wanted it, and it seems to me that he was miserable and that, that he was a tortured soul with a lot of tension in his life. And we read in, in James 3.16 that where selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So if we're talking about ordering loves, think of the idea of selfish ambition. A selfish ambition, someone puts themselves first. Their, 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 their highest love, you could say, is their own ambition, their own desire. And what that will lead to is disorder. And so whenever you put something else besides God as first place, there's going to be this tension between them because they'll eventually compete with each other. It's kind of like if parents put their kids first, eventually there's going to be some tension. You're going to, you're going to have what the kid wants and what you know is best for the kid, and those are going to be at tension. Or if you put a person 
first. There's going to be tension there. And so we know they're not always going to be able to do what, what is good about it. And so we're going to have this, these conflicted souls. And we'll never be able to, to quite shake it. And what happened with Herod here is that, is that he didn't want to hurt John. He wanted to keep him safe, but he ended up ordering that he be beheaded. And he had this exceeding sorrow that accompanied it. And so what will happen is when we have these divided loves, we're going to have this tension, these competing desires often, and there's going to be this sorrow that lingers after it. And often what happens is when we can do whatever we want, we do whatever we want, there's this feeling of emptiness afterwards where, you know, is, is that as good as it gets? Is this, so maybe you're, you have success in your job or at school and you kind of, you know, reach the top of a ladder and you accomplish something. And at the end of it, you feel this sense of just like, is that, is that it? It just, there's a, there's an emptiness that comes along with it. And some might describe this as an existential crisis. Um, I read an article this week about an existential crisis. It described it this way. It says, an existential crisis refers to feelings of unease about meaning, choice, and freedom in life. Whether referred to as an existential crisis or existential anxiety, the main concerns are the same. That life is inherently pointless. That our existence has no meaning because there are limits or boundaries on it. And that we all must die someday. So Herod had done whatever he wanted to. But then he found that when he did that, he was exceedingly sorry that, that he killed and executed. He killed a good man. And rather than he wanted to keep him safe, but at the same time, his other, his disordered love brought him to the point where he had to have this man killed. And so in doing what he wanted to do, he hurt the man he was trying to keep safe and his love was disordered. So his actions were disordered. And, you know, how pointless must life seem for Herod? And, and I just wonder, at the end of this whole episode, maybe a quiet moment later that night or the next day, maybe when he sobered up, if he just kind of thought, you know, what have I become? Why did I, what were the series of events that led me to have this guy executed? And, and maybe you've been there. You know, maybe you had, I don't know, you, you've had that tension in your soul. And, and maybe you've wondered about, you know, where you are in life. You know, why am, I, why am I the way that I am? And you just become a bit reflective. You know, we kind of try to kind of steer away from these moments of silence when we become more reflective. But maybe you've wondered before, you know, what have I become? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Or, or maybe there's this sense where you feel anxious a lot. You feel like you're always on edge. Maybe it's you're angry. Maybe you often feel sad, like you're just done, just done. What's the point of it all anyway? And in these moments, in these moments where we're angry, maybe we're sad, we kind of wonder, like, how did we get here? We become a bit more self-reflective. And I wonder if we go there, which we don't like to go here as much, but when we get there, I wonder if it would do us good to wonder, have our loves become disordered? What are the things that God is so uneasy, so anxious, so sad, or so upset? And I think we'll often find that, that our loves have come out of order. Maybe our family has, has become uh, first in a place that's become disordered. You know, you put your family first, eventually there's going to be tension there. It's going to go back and forth. You're, 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 you know, you're working hard, work's going to come first. Well, eventually that's going to compete with other things. There's going to be things you do that you don't want to do. And whenever, whenever we break the first commandment, whenever we create another God out of something that's not God, we're just going to have tension in our soul. 
And eventually that's going to lead us to a place where we're actually, we can do whatever we want and we do what we don't want to do. And that's going to tie a knot in our souls and we're not going to be able to quite untie. And what I'm suggesting is that in those moments, maybe our loves have become disordered in some way. And the more your loves get disordered, the more miserable and pointless your life will seem. And I think that's where Herod was. He could do it all, but man, this guy was unsettled and he was doing what he didn't want to do. And that's what happens when our loves become disordered. Now, let's consider on the other side, let's consider John. What did John the Baptist love? So what we know about John from this passage is he called out Herod for marrying his wife or his brother's wife. And John wasn't afraid to go against the king. He was more concerned with God's truth, what God had said. And so God had spoken about what Herod had done. And, and John speaking out against the king was a courageous and it was a good, it was a good thing. Uh, and it's certainly different from what it might be today in regards to calling out leaders. You know, if, if you're a conservative Christian, then it's borderline trendy and cool uh, to speak poorly about uh, a, a, Democrat, a Democratic president or official. You know, if you want to say bad things about President Biden, it will most likely cost you nothing. You're certainly not going to fear for your life. Um, it, it might cost you some time on somebody else's website. But, but the persecution that, that John had here is not relevant for us today. And, and in my opinion, it seems that a lot of Christians have forgotten 1 Peter 2.17. says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And you know who the emperor was in Peter's day? And in, in, in this day, it was, it was Nero, the Roman emperor, who was ultimately responsible for Peter's death. Honor the emperor. But anyway, so John here is speaking against Herod in his adulterous marriage. It's no small thing. He probably knew he might die because of it, and neither is it dishonoring the emperor. It's, it's just calling it what it is. It's, it's calling his sin egregious because it was egregious. And I'm sure that John knew that it very well might cost him his life. But he loved God's word more than he loved his own safety. So John, valuing God's truth over what Herod might do, said what he said, and he suffered the consequences. Herodias wanted to put him to death. Herod put him in prison, and he was eventually beheaded there. And this is what John got for being faithful to God's word. So John the Baptist, faithful to God's word. What happens? prison, then beheaded. And don't we usually think, hey, be faithful, and in the end, it's going to work out. Things will, things will probably even be better on the other side of prison. And it's almost like as Christians, the only narrative we have is the Joseph narrative. You know, Joseph was sold into slavery and eventually rose to second in command in Egypt, and it's a sweet and great story. <laughs> That's not the only story we have in the Bible. We have John the Baptist, faithful, goes to prison, and then doesn't become second in command, loses his head. John himself was even confused in prison. The Messiah was supposed to come and conquer people like Herod. And we see in Matthew chapter 11 that John doubted if Jesus was really the one. He sent to his disciples and he said, Would you ask, is Jesus, is he really the one or should we wait for another? So John finds himself in this miserable place. He's alone, probably scared, and he's having some serious doubts about who Jesus is. And this is all because he's doing everything right. 
John is loyal to Yahweh no matter the cost, even when he's alone, afraid, and in doubt. John loved God more than he loved safety and security. And love for God has a specific way of showing itself. And it might not be what you think. When it comes to loving God and how it manifests itself, it might not be what you think. It might not be the person who's the most emotional when they sing. It might not be the best theologian. Love for God might not be the, the, the person that's the busiest with ministry and service. But what, the way that, that love for God must demonstrate itself is obedience to God's commands. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. So John the Baptist, his love was rightly ordered, and it's shown by him keeping God's word. He loved God, therefore he kept God's word. And as a result, his life did not get easier, but instead he died young. He died young, but his life and his loves were in good order. And perhaps the suffering, even though it was difficult and there was doubts, the suffering made the obedience probably even a little bit sweeter for John. There might have been a value for John in offering to God a sacrifice as, as a high of a cost as his life. In 2 Samuel 24, King David is about to buy some land. And he's going to buy this land so that he can offer, uh, build, an offer, build an altar and offer a sacrifice. And anyway, the owner of the land says, hey, man, you can just have the land. I know what you're doing. Just take the land. And David says this. He says, no. I will buy it from you at a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David wanted it to cost him something. And what I'm saying is our obedience can be sweeter if it comes with a bit of a cost. You know, if you imagine a guy, let's say he's going to take out a girl. It's going to be a first date. And he takes her to McDonald's. And he says, hey, let's keep it on the value menu, on, the, on, the, on the dollar menu, right? And let's keep it under $5, right? So there's going to be a sense where that probably received poorly by the date because it communicates something. Now, contrast that. Let's say somebody has his first date with this girl he really likes. And so the month before, he picks up this little side job, this side hustle, and he stores up all this money and he takes this girl on a really nice date. Well, it's going to communicate more because it costs something. I'm not trying to say like, you know, guys should you know, be more expensive or girls want guys to just throw away money. It's not that I'm saying there's a sense where the cost communicates something. And in John's faithfulness to God and God's word, he offered something to God that he will not be able to offer him in heaven or in the new heaven, new earth for all eternity. In this, he was able to offer to God his suffering and ultimately his life. He will not have that opportunity in heaven, there is a window of time where you can offer to God worship in suffering. You will not do that in heaven. You can do that now. And there's no greater sacrifice or worship offering than your life. On the surface, it seems like John got a really bad deal. He died because of a random comment at a birthday party. But what was it in reality? It was a sweet offering to God. And, and as Christians, we need to have a category for suffering that translates into worship. You know, this is the talk. This is the message right here. We need a category for suffering 
that translates in to worship. We will not have that opportunity to worship God in that way in, in heaven. There is a window and it closes at the end of your life to be able to transform your suffering into worship where it really costs you something and it's sweet in that way. So we have to have a category for suffering that translates into worship. And if we're going to have that category, we definitely need to have a category for suffering. Suffering is a matter of when and not if. I don't like it. I try to avoid it. It's coming though. You will suffer. I will suffer. Sometimes it'll be like the best kind is when we suffer for righteousness sake, like John. Sometimes we'll suffer just seemingly random. Sometimes we'll suffer for our own stupidity, right? That happens too. But suffering can always be translated in to worship. But we have to understand that suffering is a given. A few quick verses, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James 1.2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So when you meet trials of various kinds, not if you meet trials. 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Suffering is a given. It's going to happen. Suffering should not be so much of a mystery for, for us as much as just expected. And we do not need to try to figure out why we are suffering. Hear me say it again. When you suffer, don't try to figure it out. Don't try to, certainly don't try to match it up to some kind of atonement that you did something wrong and God's making you pay for your sins. The cross did away with that idea. That's not what it is. And the whole book of Job is about Job and his three idiot buddies talking about why it happened. Why is this bad thing happening to Job? And the, and the bulk of the book is leading to just stop it. Shut up. There's something going on behind the scenes you don't see. And so when you suffer like John does, and he died because of a stupid comment at a birthday party. But y'all know it wasn't that. There's a sovereign God behind the scenes orchestrating all this, and it was a sweet thing. John died because he was faithful to God's word, and he offered something to God in that moment that he will not be able to offer him in heaven. So what do we do with our suffering when we find ourselves in a situation like John's? We love God in the midst of it. And how do we love God in the midst of it? By being faithful to keep his commands, by not budging. You know, isn't it sweet that, that John didn't, like he's in prison, about to get his head, head you know, taken off. And he said, hey, you're about to get killed for this. I was like, well, actually, maybe, let me go look back. at maybe I, maybe I misread it. Maybe I misinterpreted it. No, he was faithful to the end. And so what will it look like for us to be obedient in the midst of our suffering? Hear this. There is a command that we can keep in the midst of our suffering, and it's mind-blowing comes out of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And this is a commandment that you can keep in the midst of your suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's this, and it's annoying. <laughs> Give thanks in all circumstances. If you want to be obedient when you suffer, be thankful in the midst of it, even to be thankful for the circumstance that you're suffering in. And y'all, isn't love best expressed in suffering? I mean, most of these like action movies that we watch and see, isn't, isn't when, when, when somebody's going to rescue the beloved, isn't there a measure of suffering that's involved? Isn't that what brings us in, that suffering? Isn't that what we daydreamed about when we were young? 
Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If we're going to talk about love, we're often, if we're going to tell a story about love, suffering is going to be involved in the story. And how do we know Jesus loves us? The way we know that Jesus loves us is because he suffered for us. In 1 John 4, 10, we read, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If someone is going to be faithful to God's word, then they need to love God. More than they need to believe certain things or do certain things, if someone's going to be faithful to God's word, they need to love God. And and what do we see in 1 John 4.10? If they're going to love God, what do they need first? They need to know that God loved them first. And how do we know that God loves us first? Because he came into our world and suffered for us. So may God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, fill us with the love of God, may known through the cross the suffering of the Son of God, that we might rightly order our loves to love God and in the midst of our suffering count it as joy to be faithful and to translate that suffering to worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this picture of John, faithful to the end. And Lord, we can ask for no better. Would you help us, Redeemer Church, would you help us to be faithful to the end? And we know that begins with with us loving you, and, and we don't love you until we understand that you loved us first. And we see that demonstrated most clearly at the cross. And so would you open our eyes to see that, to, to, to wonder at it, and to be moved by it. And Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.